praise God for that beautiful picture of the gospel at work in people's lives. Um, I saw that first hour too. I knew it was coming. My name is Andrew Clausen, and um, I'm one of the pastors on staff here at Christ Community, and I'm also one of the pastoral fellows, which for those of you who don't know, the fellowship is a program that uh, Christ Community has kind of in, in association with Trinity Evangelical Divinity School where we bring a couple of, of um, relatively new pastors on staff every single year, um, and we kind of get thrown into the midst of vocational ministry, and we get to serve you as pastors, and yet we also just get to learn a lot about how to be a pastor and how to be a leader in God's church. And so I have been blessed, we have been blessed, my wife and I, to come here to Kansas City, to come to Christ Community and serve you, specifically here at the Leewood campus. We have a fellow um, at the Brookside campus, Claire McClun. We have a fellow at the Olathe campus, Tim Spanberg. Um, But I've been here with you now for over a year, which is really exciting, right? Um, It's also a little concerning, because in less than a year, we'll be gone, which is just really sad. It's, it's hard to even think that we're going to um, be leaving this congregation that we love, this church. Um, but that being said, it's the way it goes, and it's also exciting to know that, that Christ Community is sending us out to serve the local church in different places. Um, so as I said, my name is Andrew Clausen. Um, I'm from Nebraska. I watched Nebraska play last night. They didn't play very well. I'm sorry for those of you who are Nebraska fans. We can, we can get together afterwards and have a holy huddle that cries and weeps. But um, my wife and I have been married for five years now. And the last time I preached, I got to tell you all that we were pregnant with a little girl. Well, praise God, she is, she is with us now. She was born April 27th. Myra Catherine Clausen, she is beautiful. Um, she is she is you know, just this little tank of a girl. She, um, she weighs like half of what her four-year-old brother weighs. You know, watching the, watching the Husker game last night, I kept thinking, if only they let girls become linebackers, we would have a future with my daughter Myra, um, you know, to work my way into Nebraska football somehow. We don't live vicariously through our kids, do we? No. Um, but that being said, my wife Greer and I have two kids, Owen, who's three and a half, almost four, and Myra, who's now just right at four months, which is really exciting. So why don't I pray, and then we're going to get started. We're going to jump into God's Word. <clears throat> Father, we ask in this time, Lord, for, um, for your Word to do your work in our hearts. Lord, we ask that your Spirit would apply this good news of the Gospel, that it would expose and reveal our tendency, our temptation, to sin against you, that it would expose our need to be self-sufficient and that it would show us how through believing in what Jesus has done, we can be saved and we can grow in Christ-likeness. Lord, we ask, we just ask for your Spirit's work as we open your word. In Christ's name, amen. Well, for those of you who have been with us for a while, we've been going through this thing called Open Here, which is really just our church's kind of Um, church-wide pursuit to start and or strengthen the spiritual habit of daily Bible reading. We believe so wholeheartedly that the Bible, that reading the Bible on a daily basis produces spiritual health and growth, that we are trying really hard as a whole congregation to move towards forming the habit of daily Bible reading. So it's not about content. It's not about quantity, even though those things are really important. It's really about getting into this rhythm where the Bible is getting into us and us into God's word every single day. And if you've been with us for a while, you'll know 
that we've been walking through the Old Testament. In many ways, it feels like we're God's people, right? We're like God's people, Israel, walking through these stories with them. It's been exciting to see how our story, in so many ways, is very similar to theirs, right? And yet the day we've all been waiting for is finally here. The day we've been longing for, the day that we've been yearning for, is finally here. If you've been reading through Open Here with us, you would know that in Genesis 1 and 2, God created all things on heaven and earth, including the crown of his creation, his image bearers, man and woman, Adam and Eve. In Genesis 3, Adam and Eve sinned against God. They disobeyed his word, sending the world into a tailspin of decay. In Genesis 12, God called Abraham out of his homeland into a new land to create a new family of God's people. This people would grow and blossom and eventually be called Israel. And Israel would eventually fall into slavery and bondage in Egypt. In the Exodus, we saw how God took his people out of Egypt through the death of every firstborn son and through the miraculous walking through water at the Red Sea. We saw in 1 Samuel how God called a king, but he called a king who is the runt of his litter, the shepherd boy, David, to be the greatest king who ever lived in Israel's history. We saw in the historical books how God called prophets, priests, and more kings to lead God's people. And yet even those prophets, priests, and kings continued to walk God's people down a path of disobedience. We saw in the prophets how God warned them over and over and over again not to disobey him. And yet, the spiral kept going down and down. So God sent them into exile in Assyria and later Babylon. And God's people were there in a foreign land amongst a foreign people without their God. But God redeemed them from exile, brought them back into his land. We saw that in in Nehemiah and Ezra and some of the prophets. And last week we were in the book of Malachi, which is looking forward to the New Testament. And that's where we find ourselves this morning, looking forward to what happens in the New Testament. And yet, as we ended the book of Malachi, the last word in the book is destruction. And there's 400 years of silence before God speaks to his people again. 400 years where God didn't speak to his people, yet though God had not spoken to his people, he hadn't retired. He was still at work. God was shifting power from the east, from Assyria and Babylon to the west, to the Greeks and the Romans. God was working the chess pieces of the world at the time to bring everything to happen in this important little land called Israel, God's promised land to his people, where where. Right in the middle of this land was everything that everybody needed. It was the perfect trade route for all the major um, um, civilizations of the area at the time. So it was this cultural melting pot. And it was this place of, of civil unrest, this hotbed for insurrection. Israel became this place where God's people were constantly oppressed under the thumb of Rome and yet continued to long for their Savior, continued for the, lo- the Lord's salvation, continued to yearn. For his good news. And that's where we're at today. That's where we find ourselves. If you have your Bible with you, either in print or digitally, I'd love for you to open it up because we're going to be in the text quite a bit. We're going to look at Luke chapter 2. We're going to walk through the text and see how God's word 
chooses to work in our hearts today. Will you look with me at Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 21. I'm going to be reading from the English Standard Version. I would encourage you to follow along as I do so. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. And this was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem. Because he was of the house and lineage of David to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. She gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths, laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were filled with fear. And the angel said to them, fear not, for behold, I bring you Good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known, to say, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. And at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus. The name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. Our text this morning has one big idea and two responses that come right out of the big idea. And the big idea is right there in verse 10. Look with me at verse 10. The big idea is this. The gospel is good news of great joy for all people. The gospel is good news of great joy for all people. Gospel just means good news. That's all it means. Gospel means good news. So when it says that the angel brought good news to the shepherds, the text says that the, go- that, that the angel gospeled the shepherds. They brought good news. And this is what the big idea of our text this morning is all about. The gospel is good news. So if the gospel is good news, what does it consist of? What is it made up of? What is the gospel? And I I think our text gives us two big things to hang our hats on this morning. The first is the gospel is the good news. This gospel is good news about a person. His name is Jesus. In Luke 1, for those of us who have read it before, if we've ever been to any Christmas service in any church ever in our entire lives, we would know that Mary was was blessed by this angel with this, this foretelling of a child. The angel said to her, Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. 
And here in our text this morning, this happens, right? This is fulfilled. So what was told to Mary has now happened. So Jesus was a human being. He was born of a woman. But he wasn't only a human being. He was also the Savior. Look with me at verse 11. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. In verse 21, again to fulfill the prophecy, Jesus was named Jesus. <laughs> and his name means the Lord saves. Yahweh saves. Jesus was the Savior. Jesus is the Savior. And a Savior implies something, right? It implies that we need salvation, right? If there's anything that we've learned as we've walked through this story of the Old Testament, kind of as God's people, looking through the lens of God's people, is that we need a Savior because those people needed a Savior, right? We are sinful by nature and by choice. Hosea's wife, Gomer, we're just like her, right? We recklessly run after spiritual lovers. As Andrew Jones said to us months ago, you can take the people out of Egypt, but you can't take the Egypt out of the people. We all need a Savior. But Jesus is not only a man, he's not only a Savior, he's also the Christ. Look with me at verse 6. While they were there, the time came for her to give birth. That's the wrong verse. Sorry, verse 11. <laughs> For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. This isn't like Jesus' last name, right? So you don't show up to a dinner party and say, you know, Kevin Harlan, this is my friend, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is my friend. Kevin Harlan, this is his wife, Sharon. This is their dog, Hank. I hope you like their home. I hope you like chicken. That's what we're having tonight. Like, this isn't Jesus' last name. It's a title. It means the Messiah. It means the anointed one. And people in Jesus' day and people before Jesus' day in the Old Testament who were um, designated by God as mediators, as intermediaries, as go-betweens, were anointed with oil. So prophets, priests, and kings were blessed by being anointed with oil. Prophets, they mediated God's word to his people. Priests mediated the prayers and sacrifices of the people back to God. Kings were the intermediaries of God and his people respectively. So this is what it means to be a Christ. It means to be the anointed one, and it's bound up with what it means to be the Savior because God's people have been waiting for this Messiah, this Savior. They're two different things, the same person. Jesus, this gospel, this good news, is about a person named Jesus who is, who is a human who is a Savior, who is the Christ. The gospel is also good news about a particularly humble person. So he wasn't just a person, but he was a particularly humble person. Now look with me at verse (laughs) 6. While they were there, the time came for Mary, that's her Mary, to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. This is a real woman giving birth to a real baby. Luke, the person who wrote this book, we know him as, as, as a doctor. And obviously, if he wrote this book, he was probably a theologian of sorts, it seems like, because he just has this beautiful theological picture of what it means to understand God. And yet, on top of that, 
He was a historian. He undertook to write Luke and Acts in order to show what happened. He said in Luke 1, I have undertaken. He's writing to the person who he's, he's writing this book for. His name's Theophilus, and he's saying, Theophilus, I have undertaken to compile a narrative, a story of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses. Luke's purpose in writing Luke and Acts was to show what had happened. There's no reason for us to not believe that this is a real woman giving birth to a real baby in real time, space, history. Jesus' birth shows his humility. He was born into total and utter dependence on, on his parents. I mean, he, wasn't, he, he, didn't, he didn't step onto the scene as a fully grown man, right? This isn't the curious case of Benjamin Button Christ. He was born of a woman. He was born of a woman. When we had Myra, our daughter, there was this really hard thing when we were in the hospital. Um, she had some problems swallowing. You know, she'd spit up a little bit. That's common. It's not too gross. We can get away with it here. Um, she'd spit up a little bit, and she would choke on her spit up. And, you know, like, we're talking turn blue, type choking, where as a parent, you're like really freaking out, and you're like, praise God, there's doctors and nurses everywhere, and they know what to do, and they show you, you know, you turn the kid over, and you just like beat the pants out of them, which just seems terrible. Like, this child is barely 24 hours old, and you're supposed to just like pound them. I mean, you guys know, this is terrible. But anyways, in order to keep them alive, you have to do that. And, and we're thinking to ourselves, in two days, in less than two days, what's going to happen? They're going to send us home with this child who has a choking problem. This is terrible. Who does this? And yet in that, we felt terribly helpless. We seemed totally, totally helpless to help this little girl. What if, what if it happens when she's sleeping? What if it happens when we're sleeping? We felt helpless. She's helpless. She can't do anything about herself. Jesus was helpless in his birth. Jesus was totally dependent on two parents for his livelihood. He nursed. He pooped. He grew. Jesus was a man. His birth shows his humility. Look at Jesus' birthplace. Jesus wasn't born in Jerusalem. Jesus wasn't born in, in the city of all Jewish cities. He wasn't born in, yeah, he wasn't born close to the temple where God's presence uh, resided at the time, right? Instead, where's he born? Bethlehem. Now, I know you're thinking to yourself, well, that's to fulfill the prophecy from Micah. Yeah, Absolutely. But Bethlehem was a backwater town for country bumpkins. Bethlehem was like the, the armpit of God's land. It wouldn't have even shown up on a map were it not for David. And this is where he was born. Look at where he wasn't born in a, in a palace. He wasn't born in a, in a hospital. He wasn't born in a, a nobleman's house. He's born in a stable, right? When Jesus forgets to shut the back door or the fridge door, he can literally claim he was born in a barn. I wish I could say that. Jesus was born around, uh, among animals, like stinky, nasty stock animals. Like this isn't, you know, your King Cavalier retriever or whatever those little things are. You know, this isn't the cat that decides to come around whenever it chooses, you know? I really don't like cats. Um, <laughs> they, he was born among stock animals, like cows and donkeys and pigs and all kinds of crazy things, right? I mean, we're probably thinking, oh, I love Deanna Rose. Okay, sure. Yeah. 
We love Deanna Rose. How long do you, how much time do you spend at Deanna Rose when you go? Only as much time as is necessary for your kids to be happy and then you get out of there. Nobody wants to have a baby in those conditions, right? I mean, let's be honest here. Nobody wants to have a baby in those conditions. But this is where Jesus was born. Jesus' birthplace shows his humility. Look at the people around him when he's born. His parents are unwed parents. This is a big Jewish no-no. I mean, people are like, you know, starting to pick up rocks and stuff. Joseph was a carpenter. He was a man that worked with his hands. He wasn't a political leader. He wasn't a religious leader. From all we can tell, he wasn't a man of great means. He was a man of, of, of noble character, but he wasn't anything special. He was extraordinarily ordinary. Jesus wasn't born to a country in wait. He wasn't born to crowds of people looking for the Messiah to come, but just some angels and some shepherds and some animals and his parents. You know, this, this new prince or future heir to the throne of England was born a, a while ago, and it's amazing. It's amazing. That, that kid over there has nothing to do with our country. I can't tell you how much I heard about this kid in preparation for his birth and the arrival of him and all these wonderful things. One of the first questions, we have good friends who live in the UK and we Skyped with them, you know, a month after he was born. One of the first questions we asked is, tell us about the new prince. It's like, why? Nobody cares. And that's what it was like for Jesus. Nobody cared about him. Everybody cares about this prince in England. Nobody even knew what was going on. The place of Jesus' birth, the people at Jesus' birth, all show his humility. There were shepherds there. We're thinking, oh, these wonderful men who take care of, you know, ewes and ewes. Um, I mean, these guys were like the socially isolated of the day. These were, you know, the John Waynes of Israel's plains. They were cowboys. They were ramblers. You know, they didn't have wives and kids. They just hung out with stock animals all day long. They didn't show up on the cover of People magazine. And these were the people at Jesus' birth that show his humility. The text goes to great lengths to show how Jesus is in contrast with Caesar. Caesar makes this edict, this this go and, and register. And what happens? The next day, it seems like. The text has this emphasis, like it just happens. He says it, it happens. And Jesus can't even feed himself. Caesar's presented with power. He speaks and the whole world listens. Jesus can't even put put articulation together. He can't put words together at this point. Caesar is worshipped, and Jesus isn't even a, even a man yet. He's a baby. All these things point to Jesus, not only as a man, as, as the Savior, as the Christ, but as this particularly humble man, humble Savior, humble Christ. Now, you're probably saying to yourself, Andrew, you've said a lot about the gospel You've talked about the gospel, 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 gospel. But this is the incarnation. This isn't about the gospel. This isn't about the gospel. But I think if we look closer, there's something beautiful happening here in the text. Look with me. Verses 10 and 11. We've read them already, but we'll read them again. The angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Note how it doesn't say, I will bring you good news in 33 years. 
Note how it doesn't say, for unto you I bring somebody who could be the Savior, somebody who might be, who just possibly could, maybe, possibly, maybe be the Savior. The angel is unashamed to say, this is the Savior. This is the good news. This is what you've been waiting for. Here is the Lord's salvation. He's unashamed to say those things. The text quickly and easily connects the incarnation with the gospel. Contemporary theologian Philip Edgecombe Hughes, which if you're going to be a theologian, that is the name to have, right? Philip Edgecombe Hughes. Wow. He said this, Bethlehem is not the whole story. The birth that took place there was not an end in itself, but a means to an end. The end to which Bethlehem was a means was Calvary. And unless Bethlehem is seen in direct relationship to Calvary, its true purpose and significance are missed. The cradle was the start of the road that led to the cross, and the purpose of Christ's coming was achieved not in the cradle, but on the cross. Jesus' humility and Jesus' humanity are crucial for understanding the gospel. Jesus' humility points to the gospel. Jesus' humanity is necessary for the gospel. Jesus was humble. Philippians 2 will say in that beautiful passage, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by, by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus' humility is always pointing forward to a death on a cross, to the most humiliating death that any person could ever conceive. Even in Jesus' birth, this baby is telling us about something that will happen later, and yet it's still bound up with his incarnation. Jesus' humanity is necessary for the gospel. Galatians 4 will say, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. Well, why would we need to be born of a woman? Well, Hebrews 2 will tell us, in every respect, Jesus needed to be like us in every respect. In order to make propitiation for the sins of the people, in order to remove God's wrath, Jesus had to become like us. Though he was not created, he had to understand our creatureliness. He had to enter into the createdness of us, and yet was still fully God. Fully God, fully man, in order to be the perfect go between for man and God. 1 Timothy 2 will say, For there is one God and one mediator between God and man the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all. Jesus had to be human in order to stand in our place, to remove God's wrath, and to take away our sin. Jesus' humanity shows how the gospel, shows how in the gospel his power is made perfect in weakness. Jesus' humility shows how in the gospel Jesus' glory is made perfect through humiliation. Friends, this is good news. Amen? Amen. The incarnation, God's incarnation, was the, the, the inauguration of the gospel. And this text shows us that all things within Jesus' life and death 
and resurrection and everything afterward is looking forward to this one thing happening. Even his incarnation is pointing toward the gospel. Without a human savior, without a human savior on a one-way track to a humble death on a cross, the power would be, the the cross would be without its power. I'll say that again because it was unclear. (laughs) Without a human savior, On a one-way path to a humble death, the cross would be devoid of all its power. Friends, this is the good news of the gospel. This is good news that we can rejoice in, that all people can rejoice in. Now, good news is, is interesting. All news is interesting. We can't do anything to change news, right? Now, truth be told, we can, we can, react to news, and we can respond to news, but we can't change what has happened. We can either believe it or we cannot believe it. And if we choose to believe it, there are two things that this text specifically tells us we can, uh, how we can respond to this good news. Two ways that we respond to this good news. The first is to rejoice. If the gospel is good news of great joy, the obvious response for us as people is to rejoice in it. Look at the angels in verse 13. Suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth be peace among those with whom he is pleased. The angels burst into spontaneous praise of the salvation that's bound up with this baby. I mean, it's beautiful. We've been walking through the Old Testament anticipating this day, but in the Old Testament we just constantly got this this woe to you, right? It seemed like the prophets especially, we just kept getting this, woe to you, O Israel. Woe to you, Judah. Woe to you, Assyria. Woe to you, Egypt. Woe to you, everybody under the umbrella of humanity, right? And here, it's reversed. The angel of God and and the heavenly host are now praising what is happening in this baby. They can't not praise the Lord of creation in all things. The angels praised. First Peter talks about the gospel, the things of God, are things into which angels long to look because they had a front row seat at the inauguration of the gospel. They were there when it happened, and they can't wait for his return. The shepherds rejoiced. Look with me at verses 15 and 16. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And then they go and they visit Mary and Joseph. Skip down to verse 20. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen as it had been told them. So they leave the angels, the shepherds leave the angels, and then they go and they see the baby and they praise and they rejoice. Don't get uh, stuck in the trees here, but see the forest. Look at what's going on. Actually, flip that. Look at the trees, don't look at the forest. Notice when the shepherds rejoice. Here, one angel comes to a group of shepherds and they, they fear with great fear. The text says they fear with great fear. There's fear, 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 fear. And they fall down and they fear. And the angel says, don't fear. And then there's this heavenly chorus, right? You think of Handel's Messiah and, and the hallelujah chorus, um, the, uh, this beauty, this, this thing's happening. And instead of praising the angels, <clears throat> instead of praising the angels and this heavenly host singing praises to the Lord, they go and see a baby. And they praise this baby. That seems weird, right? I mean, I love babies. I've seen a few babies in my day. I have one at home. I love her. 
I can't imagine what it was like to see the hallelujah, you know, chorus. That would have been amazing. And yet here, the shepherds, you know, these cowboys, they go and they see this baby and they praise God because they understand the salvation that's bound up with this, this bundle of joy who's lying in a, in a food trough. It's an amazing thing. You know, when we talk about the gospel in our home, um, and maybe I should make a quick aside. Uh, this sounds really self-promotional. We do not do this well. So please don't hear me say like me and Greer have this perfect family where we talk about the gospel all the time at home. That is not what I'm saying. But that being said, as parents, we have to recognize that we influence what our children believe about the gospel more than anybody else in the entire world. And we have to understand the responsibility that's placed on us as parents bringing children into this world. You know, and so there is this impulse for us as parents to have the gospel on our lips and on the, the frontlets of our eyes and on our doorposts and as we walk in you know, this Deuteronomy 6 vision of gospel everywhere. And again, we don't do this great. But when we do talk about the gospel with our son, you know, we're driving in the car, we're sitting down at dinner or something like that, you know, we'll, we'll usually ask him, you know, so what is the gospel? And he'll say, he'll, Owen will say, good news, amen. Okay, so what is this good news about? Well, it's about Jesus, Amen. And what did Jesus do in the gospel? Well, he died for our sins. Amen, right? That's a good deal. And yet it took a while in starting this process of teaching him about the gospel for him to understand that if there's good news, then there has to be what? There has to be bad news. He didn't want to understand that. It it was hard for him to make that mental gap. And I think similarly, we don't like to think about that bad news. I mean, I'm a pastor, right? Right? One of my friends says that we're, called, uh, we're, we're paid to be goods, right? We get paid to look good and to be good and to be holy and all these things, which is, I mean, there's no pressure in that, right? <laughs> and yet, I think all of us can empathize, can understand that when we see our sin, we want to we push it down and keep it hidden away. We don't want to think about it. But what I've noticed more and more as I grow in faith is that the more I understand the depth of my depravity, the more I understand the seriousness, the scope, and the scale of my sin, the more I can rejoice in the good news of what Jesus has done on my behalf for my sin. The more I understand how deeply we, I've fallen, the more I can rejoice in this good news in the gospel. Friends, the gospel is good news of great joy. So that's the first response, rejoice. The second response, and this will be brief, is to tell all people. If the gospel is good news of great joy for all people, then we should tell all people, right? If this really is good news for all people, the implication is to tell all people. But how can it be good news for all people? As I said, Genesis 3 kind of started this spiral effect where where sin pervades every aspect of our life, right? If there's one character trait, one personality trait of, 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 of humanity that the Bible presents, it's sinfulness. And yet, because everybody is at the same place at the foot of the cross, we all need a Savior. And we can all believe, we can all come to the Savior with our sin and he will take our sin off of us. Look at the commoners in the story. Mary and Joseph were normal people. They were, as I said, extraordinarily ordinary. Normal people could believe this good news. The socially isolated, right? The cowboys. They came to know this good news of great joy in Jesus Christ. In the story immediately following ours, Simeon, 
This man who had been promised by God to see the Lord's salvation before he died said, Lord, now you're letting me, letting your servant depart in peace. According to your word, my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. The two major categories in the Jewish mind, in the Jewish kind of people, was Jew and Gentile. Simeon is saying that this gospel, this good news, is literally for all people. All people. And so if this gospel, if this good news is really great joy for all people, then we should tell all people. We should tell them about this good news. The Bible is saturated with this message of good news, bound up with a baby in a feeding trough. The Old Testament we've seen, and we as pastors have tried to point to how the gospel is really something that's happening throughout the entire Old Testament. For those of us who have read the New Testament, the gospel is always looking back to the cross, back to the gospel. And here in Luke 2, we see this beautiful bridge where Luke uses the Old Testament, he thinks about the New Testament, and connects the dots to show us how everything is really focused on this centerpiece of the gospel because this is good news of great joy for all people. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the only news that is truly good for all people. Let us pray. Father, we praise you for this this message of great joy, this good news of great joy. And we ask, Lord, we ask that you would um, write it on our heart, that you would help us to understand the depth and the weight that comes with understanding this good news. Lord, help us to rejoice in it and help us to tell others. We ask these things in your powerful name. Amen.